talking insects today. What's the deal with murder hornets, murder wasp, whatever we're calling them? It's not their name anyway. What was the big hubbub about? You're going to hear all about it today. Fantastic episode. Return guests setting a record three times. I've never had anyone on here more than three times, so he's in an elite class. There's only three other guests that have done that have been on the show three times. One of my favorite guests of all time. I think insects are so fascinating, guys. Uh, and so I had him on twice in a row last year. Go back and check out the Barrett Klein episodes if you find this interesting. I ate insects. We talked about insect sleep. We talked about insects' commu- uh, communication, how insects impact our culture, our lives. A lot of people don't realize. Why should people think, why should I care about some little insect, these tiny little things. And it really is hard for us to really be mindful of just how much these sometimes pesky little creatures actually do influence our very way of life. Really cool conversation. If you want to be involved in it and have further follow-up questions or ideas for new episodes, Go to the YouTube page, leave a comment, subscribe, get on there. There's highlights you can share with your friends. There's a lot of ways to get involved and uh, and help me out. I'll be doing a big media push in September. And so that's when the YouTube channel and everything's going to start taking off for me. So you can be a Shane Moss YouTube channel hipster. We finally got everything pretty close to exactly how I want it. The quality, especially of this episode, is fantastic. We've been making improvements. Still have a bank of old ones that we'll be releasing That's um, uh, that, that were recorded before we made some of the modern improvements, but I'm super excited that you guys get to hear the progress that I've made in such a short amount of time. I know this is egocentrism that I care so much more about this stuff than the average listener, but I am so proud of what I've been able to put together during this uh, a crazy time where we're all trying to figure out these new things, and I've put together something that I believe is going to better this podcast and science communication generally for years to come. So I'm super excited about it. Get in on the ground floor of the YouTube channel. Leave some comments. Throw a like on there. And if you're not into YouTube, well, you can always throw a, a throw a little review in your podcast app that you're listening to right now. Enjoy today's show. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. My guest today is uh, fantastic. Uh, He's one of the most enthusiastic human beings I've ever met. Um, And super talented, an illustrator, an etymologist, biologist, all of the things, as far as I can tell, all the things in the past we've talked about. I ate some insects. Um, I, I've had him on twice, and he's been on Stand Up Science once. 
University of Wisconsin La Crosse, my home area. We ate insects together. Um, Can I interject? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you feel stronger uh, with that additional nutrition? Yeah, I still the, feel it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was about a year well, ago, and I effects. still, I can That's still, right. I'm, I'm gonna need a re-up soon. We, we talked about insect sleep. We talked about um, how insects impact culture. I forced you into talking about insect mating behavior because for people that haven't heard about it before, boy, fascinating topic. Fascinating topic. We talked about how how bees um, communicate with one another um we all i i've been uh i might have done a practicing waggle your waggle dance uh, well, uh, yeah I've practicing been, your waggle dance Good. yeah i can i gotta stand up to do it well and um uh, uh, i've been having my students practice their waggle dances at home remotely really oh yeah is it oh yeah can you are you allowed to grade people on their waggle dance or is that like a iffy <laughs> That was an optional component for the exercise. Okay. They did have to decode honeybee waggle dances. Performing it, that was a plus, a bonus. Uh, they, so they performed, and then people had to guess what they were signaling with their waggle? That's right. So what I had them do was hide a treat somewhere off in the distance, maybe 50 or 100 meters outside. And then they trained their partner in this era of social distancing to... Decode a waggle dance, distance and direction in this waggling dance. Then they performed the waggle dance and sent their partner off to see if they could find the treat. So you're just crushing virtual teaching right now. Uh, no. Oh, it's not my favorite. I thought you I'm were taking a do. sabbatical. Are you not? Yeah, it starts now. Yeah. My research sabbatical starts now and lasts for a year. And I've just started a few different projects I'm really excited about. So tell people what your official fancy title and everything is and your background a little bit. And then you can talk about your projects if you want to. I don't know if it's too early. I don't know if we're no, spoiling no. me. Can I uh, tell you my identical twin brother's former job title? Because it's far <laughs> more impressive than mine. He was yeah. called an information synthesist theorist Ooh. yes he yes. does a lot of stuff with consciousness and stuff right yeah i gotta have and brains him on, he works at the and uh, yes you should especially now that i'm In doing fact, video should I phone him up right now it's going to really confuse people yes arno klein at the child mind institute in manhattan Ooh, i'm into it let's get him on but my title not information synthesis theorist is Associate Professor mm. of Biology, University of Wisconsin La Crosse, with a focus on animal behavior and entomology. Ooh, I love it. Although I like to pull scientific visualization into the scene. Did you do that? How to visualize science, how to create visuals that work well scientifically, to be consumed effectively, and how to critique or assess visuals, whether it be on a billboard, in a newspaper, or a peer-reviewed science journal. Hmm. So you see a picture of a bug, and you're like, uh-uh. So uh, happens almost, well, I won't say daily, very frequently. 
say, for example, you see an advertisement with a honeybee, or is it? No, <laughs> it ends up being a hoverfly, a surfed hoverfly, and people don't know the difference. I have a book. I can show uh, you. You, it, you uh, need to in a bit. You need to train me cover. on the difference of this, so I can so I can Easy. really give okay. people a talking yeah, yeah. to. So you don't look like a fool in front of entomologists. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. So you're outside. You see some flowers. You see a fly, or say a flying insect. Okay. Coming toward a blooming flower. Take note of a couple of things. One, how many wings does it have? Does it have one pair of wings or does it have two pair of wings? If it has two pairs of wings, then it's not a fly because a true fly, diptera, two wings in Greek, belongs to the hugely diverse and amazing order of true flies that have one pair of wings and then the hind wings have evolved to be these knobby gyroscopic balancing organs called haltiers. Hmm. So you can even see those, like on a crane fly, you have this crane fly, some people call them mosquito hawks, even though they have nothing, nothing to do with mosquitoes, and you can see with these little knobs on the ends. Those used to be, evolutionarily, hind wings. Flies have secondarily lost those hind wings. But on any member of the order Hymenoptera, which means married wings, you have a pair of front wings a pair of hind wings, and they're married together by these little hooks called hamuli. And that's the synapomorphy, the shared derived character that defines the lineage of Hymenoptera, which include ants, bees, wasps, the subject of at least part of today, yeah. and sawflies. Um, first off, I, that's, I, I feel like... When something has so many wings, it's just like I don't really need those. It's a blur anymore. of wings. Uh, okay, like that's kind then of I'll showing give you a few off. More. I'll, I'll give you a few more. Is it hairy? Bees, and there are over twenty thousand described species of bees on the planet, have hairy bodies, and not only that, a lot of them have forked hairs, and that increases the likelihood of them picking up proteinous pollen mm -hmm. from the anthers, the male reproductive parts of flowers. Mm. Because they're not predators, they're herbivores, they're vegetarians, and they get their protein source from pollen, which they pick up on their bodies. Oh, so they get their protein source from the pollen. I thought it was just a byproduct of going in and getting... No. So, so you can have, when, when it comes to bumblebees, honeybees, you can see on their hind legs these big sacks, these pollen sacks, these baskets carrying yellow, orange, a purplish, a red, a white, depends on what flowers they're collecting from. Mm. The pollen, that they scrape off their bodies into these pollen baskets or sacks. And This is like someone on, is, on a, at a buffet that's stuffing things in their purse. Yeah. <laughs> well, so picture it's a pandemic. Yeah. We don't we want to socially distance, right? We want to try to avoid going to a densely populated store, for example, a market. Good idea. So what do you do? Imagine if you could go to a flower and get everything you need. Meaning you could get your protein source and your carbohydrates. Mm. So 
pollen from the anthers, and then put your tongue-like mouth parts down the corolla, the tube of the flower, and suck up or lap up the nectar, the sugary, sweet, with some amino acids, um, nectar. Convert that, including uh, at least 100 ingredients from your own body, to make honey. Wow. I, it's uh, Tongue-like mouth parts is one of the most sensual... Uh, descriptions. I've ever, they must on. they must have great dirty talk. Well, think about so if we're a true bug, and I've told you in the past that all bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs. Yes, because one order of insects are the true bugs, and they have they're defined by again the synapomorphy, the shared derived character that evolutionarily defines this group is a piercing sucking mouth part called a proboscis. And that's all they have. Mm. Sticks out, pierces into you, or pierces into a flower. Hmm. An assassin bug wants to suck your blood, or a cicada, or say an aphid wants to suck the phloem from a plant, right? Hmm. But in the case of a honeybee, it's so much more. They've got transversely chomping mandibles, right? They've got a pair of maxillae with palps that have contact chemoreceptors for taste. And then they have labia with labial palps below. Now what they can do is they can chew their food or chew wax, for example, that they produce from their own bodies, or they can stick out these tongue-like mouth parts to suck up the nectar. Hmm. Amazing. I had a professor at George Eichort who said that insects' mouth parts are like a full silverware set. Knife, fork, spoon, all in one. Depends who you are. Like, for example, if you're a dragonfly immature, which is aquatic, they'll have these retractable and extensible mouth parts called a labial mask. It's from that third set of mouth parts, a labium, right? And what they do is, lightning speed, they shoot out this labial mask. So here you are, audience, and right? They shoot it out. And it can be spoon-shaped, it can have the tines of a fork, and it can even have serrated edges. And they grab their food and bring it in very quickly. Amazing. Whew, evolution. It's, it... Yeah, the one way you can really uh, define lineages and distinguish insects as a total amateur in the field, you think, oh, there are over a million described species of insects in at least 25 orders, right? And uh, so many families, it's overwhelming. But once you learn a few different key features, you can begin to competently, confidently and competently distinguish and categorize. Hmm. And the hymenopter versus flies, that's a big one. The mouth parts for the true bugs, that's a big one. So you can look at mouth parts alone. And that's pretty easy to do if you're comfortable with looking closely at an insect or picking it up and looking at it. And you can see lots of beautiful things hmm. that distinguish them. Uh, here's, here's my level of confidence. I don't know the difference between a wasp and a hornet. This comes to the all bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs, uh -huh. because all hornets are wasps, but not all wasps are hornets. Hornets constitute only one genus, one evolutionary lineage called Vespa. That's the genus name. And it has about 22 
yeah, the most recent understanding is 22 species the world over. Hmm. All but one of those are east of Europe in Asia, Russia, Southeast Asia. Only one species is in Europe. And now because of this introduction of Vespa mandarinia, this Asian giant hornet in the U.S., we have two species. Hmm. So hornets, to define hornets, they are wasps, but they're special. I could talk about their morphology, but I'll focus on their behavior. They are wasps that are social, so they form colonies, and they're predatory. Now beyond that, they have features that, uh, especially a large, most of them, that distinguish them from other groups of wasps. Like bald-faced hornets, different genus, Dolichovespula. Notice I called them bald-faced hornets. That's inappropriate. They're not really hornets. Ah. <laughs> and others like paper wasps, genus Polistes. Don't make that mistake. That's... No, no. Well, actually, don't make that mistake because there are some wasps that are really docile, really passive. And if you're a gardener or a farmer, you really want those wasps as predators of herbivorous mm. plant-eating caterpillars and other, you won't hear me say this often, pest insects. So let's get into specifically what uh, what everyone this is i'm trying to really trying to trying to clickbait uh people uh, this is this is murder yeah so i don't really follow the news that much um Mm. murder wasps have and and i can't tell uh, so people can call them murder hornets as well if they want to yeah people are calling them murder wasps or murder hornets it doesn't matter Uh, neither name Neither name is uh, the official common name. It's the Asian giant hornet. And neither name is appropriate. Why? Because they're predators. Every predatory species is, by default and definition, a murderer. Uh, Right? So if, for example, you are not a vegan... You're a murderer. Now, you might be, um, say, a carnivore, specifically, exclusively. You might be an herbivore. You might be a fungivore, a nectivore. uh, You might focus on blood exclusively, right? Like a vampire bat and some ectoparasites like lice and others. Or you could be an omnivore, eating anything in your path that's palatable. And it just so happens that bees of the 20,000 plus described species of bees, they're almost all herbivores. Hmm. The very few exceptions don't kill. They, they're saprophagous. They feed on decaying dead material. They're called vulture bees. As you can guess, their nests don't have the sweetest aroma. Unless you're really drawn toward putrescence. (laughs) Um, Now, wasps, on the other hand, they're predators. Now, I should say wasps, there are well over 100,000 species of wasps. Many of them are parasites and parasitoids, parasites that kill their hosts. 
and then there are predators. And all of the 22 species of hornets in the genus Vespa are predators. Hmm. So let's just, what, what exactly happened in your life when all of the sudden, all of the head, because I remember emailing you back in May, and I, I think you're, you got slammed with some media requests and stuff at the time, or was it more than usual? It, what, was it, what happened in our culture, because you also study the cultural impact of insects, what, what exactly happened where all of a sudden this was, uh, people cared about this subject? Was, was there something, was there like some newspaper article that people got wind of was there was there an actual issue that happened like that week was it just that everyone was looking for signs of the apocalypse was it a combination <laughs> of all those things <laughs> it's a great question because yes something happened that week but it wasn't something entirely new it wasn't unprecedented and i'll explain that in a moment now, why it struck the world such and why people wanted me to talk about these Asian giant hornets? Is it because they needed diversion from politics, economics, uh, racial strife, and the pandemic? Hard to know. <laughs> yeah. But when you see something like murder wasps, that kind of yeah, pushes people's buttons, right? Yeah. The last thing we need, right, is a murder hornet. Well, what happened that week was the discovery of not just one, but a couple of specimens of a hornet species that doesn't belong to the Western Hemisphere, Vespa mandarinia, one of the 22 species of hornets. Now, this is one that is found in Asia, Southeast Asia, Easterly Russia, uh, Japan. So they have grown somewhat accustomed to this wasp, which can be dangerous, and we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. But we're not, right? We have, we have some wasp species, certainly. And we have one introduced, at least at the eastern United States, wasp uh, hornet species, Vespa crabro, which was invasive from Europe, but this is quite a docile hornet, so it hasn't made the news. People don't worry about it anymore now uh, because we can't get rid of it and because it doesn't make front-page news for killing people. People have somewhat ignored it. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. Where were we? I just had a computer freak out. We're talking about hornets and we're talking about invasive species and how Ve Vespa mm. Crabro from Europe had invaded decades ago, but why Vespa mandularinia is in the news right now is because it is invaded recently. And what mm. does that mean? That means that last fall, 
in British Columbia, Canada, there was a small, maybe a grapefruit-sized nest with a colony of these wasps, of these Asian giant hornets. Now, a little bit later, in December of 2019, two worker hornets were found in Washington State, the hmm. first time they had been found in the United States. But that's actually bogus because back in 2016, and people all but ignored this, but in 2016, there was a full nest with live larvae and live pupae found in a package shipped from Japan at the border in the United States. And hmm. this was a lucky find because picture yourself as one of these um, patrolling agents, say a federal agent looking through plants and packages and all kinds of things. How many packages are you going to check with like 22,000 cargo ships coming through? You might check randomly 2% of the packages or so. So it was really fortunate when do they you, does that person does that person get like a gold star that day or like a little smiley face on their review or wow that, i mean if that's I, a, if i were that that's person, a big that that person stopped an invasive species that's incredible you could look at it you could look at it in a number of different ways maybe two ways to simplify one is i'm a hero a bona fide hero I yeah. stopped an invasive species from taking over, right? If it was me, that would be the story I'd tell everybody. <laughs> Alternatively, you could look at it and say, wow, how many other wasp nests are there in how many other packages I have not randomly selected to check, <laughs> right? So the that screening is really limited and stumbled upon one and you were lucky. Now, the key is, it's not all luck because you have to identify and distinguish what is an invasive species, could this pose a threat, what is illegal, what is endangered, etc. And in this case, a person involved correctly identified it as an Asian giant hornet and uh, determined that it was possibly sent as a food item or a medicinal item. Because yes, in parts of Asia, this hornet and some other wasp species that have intense venoms are used in liquors as well as huh. medicinals and they're consumed in some forms. This person, what kind of training does this person have where they can find a little nest in a box and be like, well, <laughs> that's, that's an Asian giant <laughs> hornet if I've ever seen one, probably sent us a liquor. <laughs> like, and they know exactly how to distill it. <laughs> now that Just, this is old news now, because so you yeah. had the 2016. This is 2016. Discovery. Okay. And then you had this 2019 fall and winter discovery in British Columbia, Canada, and Washington State, United States. So people were on edge. If this is a new invasive species, it could cause problems. This is the time because next spring, late spring or summer, it'll be too late. This is the time that we have to stop an invasion. So there's a mm. bottleneck here. Will we capture 
the existing nests or queens. And so traps, bait traps, have been set out. People have been on the search for these hornets. And the key was they emerge from their hibernation as queens, as reproductive queens in April, mid to late April. So everybody was waiting, okay, we've got to be ready mid to late April to capture queens or to bait trap these wasps. I see. And guess what? Yes, a single Asian giant hornet was discovered in Canada. A woman saw it in her garden and she crushed it underfoot. It was sent off to be ID'd and they're still trying to decide, I believe, if it's a worker or a queen. If it's a queen, okay. You know, all right, you destroyed the possibility of the sole reproductive from producing a new colony. If it's a worker, uh-oh, that suggests that there might be an extant and presently existing nest somewhere. Now in Washington, additionally, uh, well, uh, a couple of workers have been found, or at least one individual wasp has been found. So they might be out there and people continue to screen and search and bait trap. Does everyone else just know more about insects than I? Just everyone in the world, just your average gardener steps on an insect and is like, you know what, that doesn't look right. I'm going to I'm going to mail this in to the people that I I have their address here already ready to go and postmarked so I send well, in any suspicious insects I find. I think this is a good segue and a good way to address that question. Okay. Okay. So you might find something flying around your garden. Does it look like this? Oh, well, that is... If I saw that, it would stand out a a little bit. This is a pretty big wasp, right? Yeah. This is a Vespa, but it's a different species. Let's get bigger. Okay. This big. So, if we're looking at... Describe it it in size to... It's like someone described it as about the size of a lighter, almost. A Bic lighter. I wouldn't say it's quite that big, but it's pretty large. No, no, no. Definitely not. Uh, Now, this one is a worker, and workers are smaller than the giants or the queens. And let me show you a queen. Let me make it easier to see. That is... That already looks enormous. Yeah, so that's... If you saw that flying in your garden, you, you'd know something was up. Yeah, that's... Okay. So that's, this is... that, that's like, what, the size of like a golf ball? Not quite. Close. <laughs> no. So the, the worker is about maybe one and a half to one and three quarter inches. The queen is two inches long with a three inch wingspan. So it's quite large. Yeah. It's not the largest wasp species in the world. There's a Pepsis tarantula hawk wasp, which is the largest species. It is the largest hornet species in the world, but it's not the largest wasp. And we mm. have that largest species of wasp right in Arizona. So she mm. probably saw something quite large with distinct orange coloring on the head and banded on the, the third major body segment. And so... 
the to get back to your question of well i mean is it that i know less than others about insects no way because you've had me on your show <laughs> a couple times now right <laughs> so it's I've it's that so much in wisconsin if we're hearing about murder wasps think how much yeah. washington state residents are hearing about murder wasps so they're looking out for them hmm so so these things I, I guess the real the real danger is there any danger to actually humans just getting stung is that any like if someone's are there people that are allergic to giant agent Asian hornets definitely so I'm going to I'll start with extreme Asian cases. giant hornets that's, that's right. The, right I'll start okay. with the extreme so if I get stung by a honeybee, I'll have a quick feeling of pain, and then it'll swell up a teeny bit, and then it'll be itchy, and then it'll go away, right? Some people respond much more extremely to honeybee stings, and in the most extreme case, you can have anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock, and it can be life-threatening. Now, that's rare, but it's not so rare that more people die of bee and wasp stings than die of shark attacks in the world, for example, right? So it happens. And most of the deaths that occur from something like this Asian giant hornet, which strikes people, say, in, in Japan, um, with in 2017, 2018, I think there was an average of about 13 people who die, right, each year. Mm -hmm. So people die, uh, maybe 55 people have died in recent years from the species in Japan. Most of them probably experience anaphylaxis with a particular cocktail, the venom cocktail administered by the species of wasp. Mm. Now in the grand scheme of things, if one of these wasps stung you, so Shane, first of all, are you allergic to, highly allergic no. to bee or wasp stings? Okay. No. Love a good sting. Invigorating. Don't we all? Yeah. In fact, oh, in a moment, I'm going to describe stings to you Terrific. through an expert. But for the moment, I want to just compare venoms of this wasp versus another wasp and say mm -hmm. a bee. If we take a honeybee sting and we look at the famous Justin Schmidt Hymenopteran pain index scale. Very famous. I was just posting about it the other day. Yeah? Justin Schmidt. Well, he's been a guest on the show. Justin Schmidt has. Yeah. What a great guest. I, I went I so, went all the way to um I I I intentionally Tucson? went way out of my way to book a gig in Tucson that I would have never normally put that much effort into trying to get to Tucson just to get him on the show. Yeah. Yes. So see, I, 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 that, that makes me a little bit of an insect person. Yes, it does. So Justin Schmidt recently published his magnum opus called Sting, which goes yep. into the details of mm -hmm. uh, Venoms. And he ranked in a scale of one to four the, the pain that he felt mm -hmm. given stings from different hymenoptera, that order of insects that includes bees, wasps, ants, and sawflies. And honeybees were right there at two. He decided to give it a two. Mm -hmm. And then he could look at ones, threes, and fours 
in the most extreme situation, four plus, by far, far and away more painful than other hymenopteran stings, he determined. I was to be at his house, and I, I, I tried to get stung by a four at his house. It wouldn't sting me. What was it? Pepsis or was it Paraponera clavata, the bullet ant? Nope, it was, it was probably a wasp. Huge. Huge wasp. What, what was it? The 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 street Black name. and orange wings. I think so. What's the name of Tarantula it? Tarantula hawk wasp. Yes. Yeah. I tried so to. I tried so to get that one. So what it does is, she'll try to sting, and I say she because mm-hmm. uh, the workers and the queens are always female in this in this order. And what she does is she'll sting a, a, a tarantula, for example and drag the paralyzed body into what becomes a brood chamber for her developing offspring. So she's a parasitoid. Now, yes, that's a four all the way. Paraponera clavata, the bullet ant from say, I've seen it in Costa Rica and Panama, that's a four plus. Now let's go back to the honeybee as reference point two. Justin Schmidt, I've got to read these, love them. Which of your sting descriptions are you most proud of? And Justin Schmidt might have said the same thing on the show to you in person. One of my favorite favorites is the Florida harvester ant, which though it's not aggressive and almost has to be forced to sting someone, still achieves a three on the index. I describe the pain as bold and unrelenting. Somebody is using a power drill to excavate your ingrown toenail. The clubhorned wasp, on the other hand, which doesn't even merit a one, is disappointing. A paper clip falls on your bare foot. Now, in the case of this Vespa Asian giant hornet, yeah. the description I've read is stabbed by a red hot needle. Mm. Now, well, that, that so what's said, that? A two or a three? That's like a two, then. Justin Schmidt has never ranked it, so unknown. Mm. Honeybee sting here. This Asian giant hornet sting here. Guess which one will hurt more? I would say the Asian giant hornet. No? Only because it administers more venom. Say 10 mm. times as much venom. But if you do, as Justin Schmidt at all did, decades ago when this was okay, looked at how many mice die, how, say the ranking 50% of the mice die at this amount, this concentration of venom, honeybees well above that of these hornets. So honeybees are actually, sting per sting, more um, dangerous and more uh, painful than, honey, than a wasp. But because that wasp has a large stinger injecting 10 times as much venom, it's going to be far more painful. Hmm. Now, it takes maybe a thousand honeybees to actually kill a human that doesn't suffer from anaphylaxis, but it only takes, well... There's a range. One study looked at those cases known in Japan, but maybe 55 stings, but less than 30, you can survive. Uh, Justin Schmidt claims it's a couple of hundred stings that would kill you. So if you've got a colony of hundreds of these wasps, and they're not aggressive away from their colony, but if they're defending their nest, their subterranean, their underground nest, or they're defending a honeybee colony that they've taken over, then they can be aggressive. 
Hmm. Wow. That, what a way to go. That would be... That's one of the worst... Huh. Is it? Well... Maybe it's, maybe it's euphoric and glorious. The, the anaphor. So you've got all this adrenaline pumping through your body. This <laughs> yeah. amazing um, interaction with nature at its extreme. <laughs> or you could have heart attack. Plus shock. Yeah. Um, so, so the real issue with these things, though, is that is that because they're an invasive species, um, they're able to our our regular old honeybees never saw them coming. They don't have the the defenses that other honeybees in their um, native environment might have. Yeah, that's the understanding, and we're ignorant of this by and large. But the claim is. Mm that Apis mellifera, the western honeybee, hasn't evolved a defense as Apis serrana japonica, a species of honeybee in Japan, has. So mm. you, you've got this Asian giant hornet that has co-evolved with or evolved in sympatry in the same area as Apis serrana japonica, this uh, Asian honeybee in Japan. And Here's how it goes. You've got this giant Asian or Asian giant hornet and it's off hunting. Maybe it hunts a praying mantis or a large uh, moth or some other insect. Or, especially in times of desperation, it might attack en masse, and it's the only hornet species known to do this, a honeybee colony, which is far more numerous. Now, what do they do? First step, is you detect, you identify, you locate a honeybee colony. Now, honeybee colonies can number in the tens of thousands, maybe 30 to 60,000 in the wild in a hollow of a tree. Or you might have 10 to 60,000 or so bees in a single hive uh, by a beekeeper, you know, maintained by a beekeeper. Either way, hornet has to detect, locate the colony, and she could, she has a gland on her abdomen, and she can lay a little bit of pheromone there. This is a chemical tracer that communicates within her own species. If she is successful in laying a droplet of that pheromone and flying back to gather her sisters, her colony mates, to join her to mass attack this nest, then the honeybee colony is doomed. 20, according to uh, Ono, who is a lead researcher of these wasps, these hornets in Japan, it only takes about 20 to 30 of these hornets to wipe out a colony of 30,000 honeybees. So orders of magnitude more. Hmm. They're impervious to the stings of the honeybees, so they just go and decapitate, 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 kill off yeah, the honeybees, so then they have the honey stores and the pupae and larvae that they can feed on. I saw the video that you sent me with the with the dramatic music, but it was it was incredible of just yeah. having twenty or thirty of these things just killing off thousands. And it happens it's very amazing. quickly in the matter of hours. If you're a beekeeper who doesn't happen to be out during that particular afternoon, zap, you can be left with a pile of corpses, of bee corpses. So again, yeah. if she successfully lays that pheromone and flies off and gathers her sisters, they have a 
really great fighting chance of wiping out a whole colony and then having this massive food store. Mm -hmm. I said if, because in the case of Apis serranojaponica, they've evolved a defense in Japan to mass attack very quickly one of these hornets. So mm -hmm. if they detect that hornet laying the pheromone, one will attack, alarm pheromone, which is isoamyl acetate, smells like banana, fills the area, other honeybees detect, that's another um, within species means of communicating by chemicals, they fly over and mob that hornet. And what does that mean? If they can't sting it, so what? What do they do? They've evolved a defense where they contract their wing muscles without flapping their wings. They disengage them and generate intense levels of heat in the midsection of their body. They bake the invader alive. Not only that, they create an envelope of high concentration CO2. So they suffocate it and bake it alive before it's ever able to leave to gather up nest mates. I've heard of honeybees doing this with other things as well. This is this is not an unheard of defense response to apparently outside of our western honeybee. But science happens hmm. by serendipity sometimes and when I was in Würzburg, Germany uh, some years ago I was using a thermal camera. But I was doing a totally different study. I was looking at sleep behavior in these bees. And I happen to have my thermal camera on an observation hive, which is basically plates of glass with bees that you can see on the comb so you can watch their behavior. And at night, for whatever reason, a katydid, which is a grasshopper, a cricket relative, came in the entrance of the observation hive. Um, I saw it on the thermal camera because all these bees heated up and started taking out this katydid. And later, a mosquito flew into the, and they went crazy, and it heated up. And what happened? I, I decided to switch gears, at least for part of my time in Würzburg, and look at this invasion and defense, thermal defense, potentially, by Apis mellifera, the western honeybee, like Apis serrana. So I thought, wow, do they have it? So I ran a study, which I haven't published yet, but one that I'm working on, in which, yes, they are able to take out at least Vespula germanica, right? Dun, dun, dun. So they can wipe out these girls. Hmm. But a colleague of mine said, hey, let's see if that happens in the U.S. And he tried to do the same, and it didn't work. He had hmm. the same species of honeybee. Same species of wasp, Vespula germanica, although it invaded from Europe in the 1970s, maybe a not, not enough time has elapsed for evolution to select for this defensive trait. So it's something that would be fascinating to explore, and I hope to. I wanted to answer just a couple of questions. I'm, I emailed you some of the questions from people on social media and Patreon and stuff. Oh. I don't know if you got a chance to see them. But oh, I didn't. It, Sorry. It, uh, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, th there's some people. We've already answered some of them. Okay. Um, but but I think we had like a beekeeper. Is there any? Is there any like uh, Is there any defenses that a beekeeper can do? Yes. To 
prepare for this? Two things come to mind. One is bait trap. So if you place a bait trap near your nest and wasps are led to that sugary secretion, uh, they enter and they cannot exit. So you can trap those wasps, right? Why don't the bees go for that? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I don't know if uh, this exists in Japan. I haven't seen one myself. I wonder mm. if it's large enough to allow the bees back out. I don't know the answer to that question, but a great question. The other that's standard practice in Japan, and this is something that I would do, were they ever to uh, inhabit Wisconsin, the Driftless Zone, would be to place a um, screen over the entrance of the bee nest, the hive. And the idea is that screen would have a large enough gauge to allow the honeybees in and out, but not the larger hornet inside and out. So hmm. that's one thing you can do. Hmm. Are you, uh, do you find yourself concerned about, uh, I, I mean, the, the honeybees seem to have been making the news just over the last 10 years. People are more and more concerned about what's happening with the honeybees and yeah. um, are they, are they, um, are they going to make it now that we're having to ship around honeybees to help pollinate crops and things like that? Um, uh, we're trying to make robot bees, whatever else. Hey, what, what, um, it, is there a realistic, uh, threat to this becoming like a real invasive species? I've read differing accounts. So some suggest because in their natural habitats, these hornets live at temperate zone conditions that aren't too cold and not too hot, there's zero risk. For example, Justin Schmidt says there's less than nil, zero risk, right? And others will say the same in uh, establishing colonies and invading U.S. and Canada. Um, I'm not so confident because I think the Pacific Northwest might be a good place to harbor and sustain these hornets. All right. Sorry, guys. Uh, another interruption. As I explained to you a couple episodes ago, I've been going way out of my way to Im improve the video and audio quality of the show. I found out this episode that one of the things that comes along with that is improving your hard drive space on your computer. Whoops. What a fun learning process. Barrett. Great serendipity because it allowed me an opportunity yeah. to check on what is now an erratum. I gave a statistic that was incorrect. There are, according to one source, 19,000 cargo containers per day entering U.S. ports. Wow. And so if you're checking random, well, pseudo-randomly 2% of those cargo containers, what are your chances of stumbling upon Vespa mandarinia or some other invasive species? That, that's, um, I, I was, we avoided some very angry emails there, right. there would I have a lot that of right on uh, fact checkers out there. That would have been like the that cargo container number is just not adding up. That to sounds me. way. I, off. I I imagine if you work on a cargo container, yeah, I bet you listen to a lot of podcasts. 
Uh, I would think. And so what if they're listening and then they're like, what the, come on. Hey, when entomology is misrepresented and animal behavior is misrepresented, my hackles go up. (laughs) I have to admit. I admit. To others, it's minutiae. To me, these are major facts. Uh, you have a keen eye for detail. Um, so, uh, so where where do you want to go from here? Do you want to pick up where we left off? Do you want to answer some questions? You want to do a little bit of both? Want to wrap up soon? What are you thinking? I don't want to wrap up soon because now you have a number of gigabytes that we have to use up. We do. And although it would be fun to try to recollect where we were and continue uh, on, who cares? it would be also fun to go through some of the questions that would that be really fun. Fans have addressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me let me quickly wrap up the limited knowledge we have about this invasive species. Yeah. And and I believe if I'm correct, you uh, addressed a question of are they really a threat? And you astutely looked not just from an anthropocentric or human perspective, you addressed the honeybee perspective. Like, mm-hmm. what does this mean for the future of honeybees, which are already in trouble with varroa mites that were an introduced invasive species themselves, and colony collapse disorder, etc., mm-hmm. that are knocking out honeybees. Now, if we look from a human perspective, if we look from a Barrett perspective, I say wasps. <laughs> I love wasps. Wasps are marvelous. And a greater diversity of wasps. I'd love to see these Asian giant hornets. This would be wonderful to study, to admire um, from a personal perspective. But from a broader, more thoughtful, ecologically thoughtful perspective, it's the untold consequences and ecological rippling effects that could result from a new species that fills a niche that is presently filled by other social predatory colonial wasps is problematic. Mm. So I, I fully support measures to prevent this invasion. Now, the, the invasion, the, this invasive species, again, is probably limited to not extreme colds and warmth, so probably has very limited regional capacity to establish itself. Should humans worry for their own self and pain? Only in the smallest, smallest fraction of people will they be allergic, and of those will they face aggressive wasps, which are typically more docile than than a lot of other wasps, except under conditions where they're protecting their nest, yeah. which makes sense, and a nest of a honeybee colony that it, they have just felled, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right? So the worry isn't so much on the human side, but environmental unknown rippling effects should uh, concern people. Right. From the honeybee perspective, yeah. Uh, if, you're in, if you're interested in apiculture, if you're interested in this also introduced species, granted 500 years ago, but Western honeybees surviving and thriving because we depend largely on fruit nut crops and others, in, especially if they're monocultures, being pollinated by honeybees, then you should be concerned if in regions where this um, Vespa mandarinia could establish itself, cause harm to beekeeping operations. Hmm. Hmm. That said... Japanese deal with it and have been dealing with it in in relatively simple ways, like the 
high gauge screening in front of hives and bait traps. Isn't there all sorts of problems with bees in Japan? Did it, it, am I right in thinking that it's Japan where where people have taken to pollinating some of their own, like with with brushes? Um, That's in a village in China, and that was that was yes, an extreme situation where they apparently lost their honeybees. The population plummeted, and so they took this odd recourse with human labor of brushing from the anthers, the male reproductive structures that bear pollen so from one flower, to the style, the reproductive structure, the female reproductive portion of other flowers. I mean, it's an extreme example of just how much we should care about yes. our ecosystems and bees yes. and everything else. And actually, that's really relevant to... I just very briefly skimmed a few of the questions sure. that were sent to you. What, what, do you th- what do you think? Of my, of what do you think of my listeners? Are they good questions? Bad questions? <laughs> oh, these are really excellent questions, and I, I welcome terrific. all questions. Yeah. And obviously, we won't have time to address. You got a lot of questions, which is fabulous. Yeah, I wish yeah. these people we were in just, my classes. We can just then I have really couple. active classes. I say it because I brag about how how amazing my listener. Well, you've done stand up science, so you've gotten to see kind of the the crowds live that that come out. But it's it's nice being a comedian from um, from doing comedy clubs to a bunch of drunken bachelor and bachelorette <laughs> parties that over the last half of my career, I've been able to curate an audience of curious folks. This is obviously a sharp, curious crowd. And, yeah. and any, any instructor uh, would revel in that. <laughs> so here, here's one um, from Bethany Bailey's. She asks, how are wasps and bees and hornets and stingy things different? I heard the bees that are traditionally murder wasp food from a ball around the wasp beat their wings to raise the temperature and cook the wasp. So we addressed that earlier, and I alluded to the fact that bees almost exclusively are vegetarians, depending Mm -hmm. on pollen for protein and nectar for carbohydrates. While wasps are either parasitoids, parasites that kill their hosts ultimately, parasites or straight-on predators, and all the hornets are predators. Hmm. Here's one. If we just let all the honeybees get murdered, would native bee numbers rise due to the lack of competition? That's interesting. Does honeybees' cultural hegemony over all other bee species have noticeable ecological effects? It's a fascinating question because it, it... learnedly, astutely addresses that bees aren't just one species. Whenever someone says bees, people typically think of one species, Western honeybees, when there are seven families of bees, and only one of these families, apidae, then one genus, apis, and one species of apis we're most familiar with producing the honey and pollinating the crops in the United States Mm -hmm. and beyond. So this species, Apis mellifera, was um, brought over to the Western Hemisphere, and it spread, right? Now, um, if honeybees were removed, just bloop, vanished from the Western Hemisphere, we won't go world over, just from where they uh, were first introduced 500 years ago, we'd yeah. have problems. We'd have agricultural issues. Certain crops would uh, collapse, 
uh, costs of food. It would affect economically. It would affect the dinner table. It would affect the supermarket. It would affect nutrition in certain ways because we'd have to change our diets pretty mm -hmm. radically. Now, that's a short-term and potentially long-term effect, but if you think in terms of the wealth of non-apis native bees we have throughout the United States I, and beyond. I just had an episode released. It was actually recorded before the pandemic, but I was at the Arizona Research Conservation um, uh, ah, great. with uh, a, a woman, Kim Franklin, and ah, we talked great. all about bees and the native bees Good. and stuff, and it was, yeah, very interesting. Then listeners refer to that previous episode yeah. because a lot needs to be said and acknowledged and celebrated about the native bee species that we have, which do do a tremendous amount in terms of pollination. Now, they may not produce the honey, but they do... Uh, their weight in pollination. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, in my lab, the pupating lab, a couple of my students are working on pollination behavior by a family of bees that possibly few to none of your listeners have heard of. Calidity. These are plasterer bees or yellow-faced bees that produce this slick, cellophane-like, clear, transparent... Um, casing inside tunnels that they dig. They're solitary and they feed their brood pollen and nectar that they collect. And so my student is trying to figure out what kind of pollen do they collect? Is there a great diversity? Are they important pollinators? To what extent do they pollinate? So these are, to some extent, well-known questions in some groups and totally open questions in other groups. Hmm. All right. Next question. Yeah, we just um, we just had an episode about bats um, very recently, and it's a similar thing. Of uh, the similar question is, you know, what happens when a species goes near extinct? That's because of like the white nose fungus or whatever yeah. it's called that I'm forgetting. That's right. Um, and 99% of the population collapses all of a sudden. There's major implications. Sometimes just another species of bat then takes over. Sometimes that takes a really long time. Usually, usually it's something that like you wouldn't wish for to happen, <laughs> even if it might might not be as bad as you fear or whatever. And it might be much worse than you could ever predict. And there's a genetically problematic situation that occurs under those conditions too, called a bottleneck effect where say you have a bottle and you've got a great diversity, let's say colorful jelly bellies or marbles, and you pour out of the reds, greens, yellows, and blues, maybe only yellows and greens fall out, right? In your first pour. That doesn't reflect proportionally, doesn't reflect the source population diversity. Mm -hmm. So if those represent, say the genes involved or let's say the alleles, the forms of genes that were available in the source population, what are you left with? Maybe that bottleneck caused an effect where those individuals will have less genetic heterogeneity. They will be more homogeneous. And there are so many studies with honeybees and beyond to show that genetic diversity helps with survival and fitness or reproduction. 
Yeah, no one wants There's to eat the same jelly bellies all of the time. That's for sure. <laughs> right now, I I think I I think I know where you're going with that. We need to. We need to. That's exactly where I was. <laughs> you read me so well. Here's another question. So Africanized bees are dangerous, but they make honey too. If I'm correct, that is correct. In fact, the main reason Dr. Warwick Kerr initially in 1956 brought over colonies of African, African honeybees was that they seemed to be so active they would produce more honey. Um, but there were problems that came with that. They were made by human interference, right? Well, not really, because when those colonies escaped, when queens, when swarms um, erupted from their Brazilian hives, they then mated with then native bees. Well, let's say. Uh, Apis mellifera that came from Europe. Hmm. Interestingly, the hybridization, depending on who the mother is and who the father is, affects the level of aggression of those now Africanized bees, so-called hmm. killer bees. Hmm. So depending on who the mother or father is, you may be even more aggressive. So this person asks, can we do that with other species of bees again and make a new bee species that is not only docile, but resistant to the disease, bacteria, environmental changes that affect the bees we, now, we have now for commercial uses? Astute question. While we've never influenced a speciation event in bees, apparently in London Underground, there's a new species of mosquito. So anthropogenic effects, human effects, can cause speciation events in insects. Hmm. But we can cause varieties to change. Wait, wait are you saying the London, like the subway system, has right. a new species of mosquito? Yeah, apparently has... as a result of that, a new species huh. has, yeah, it's really remarkable because at first I, so, I i forgot that that's what it was called and at first i'm like wait is there an underground organization underground, right. you know among the mole people <laughs> and the the last part of this person's question is is really important because we can do some measures where breeding bees can help with say their microbiome to deal with um, pathogens, etc. Mm. And that leads me to a point that a lot of agriculturists, beekeepers ignore or deny, and that is what some people call Darwinian thinking, and that is let them go. Do something that looks, appears more natural, and let the those that have traits that can be selected for survive and thrive. So um, I have beside me just Tom let Seeley's nature take its course, and it's the lives of bees exactly. And what Tom talks about in portions of that book and in a new book he's working on is the idea that if you don't cram a lot of beehives together as we typically do in the U.S and we have maybe hundreds or thousands of hives together, talk about disease spread, think about COVID-19. Where is the spread most rampant? It's not among the hermits in mm -hmm. the mountains, right? So mm. in the case of our apiculture, how about we learn from some apiculture that exists in Asia, where there are fewer numbers, farther, uh, 
apart, spread mm. farther apart. And also, if bees are struggling, don't maintain that lineage. Look for those that are surviving despite the onslaught of varroa mites and others. Hmm. So, hmm. so we can think about your your uh, your fan's question in a lot of different ways. Hmm. Okay. Next question: Are the murder hornets the same as the wasps affecting France and other countries? And that's no. And that's the wasp I mentioned before. That's also a hornet, Vespa crabro. Is anything feeding on the murder hornets? You bet. They're going to have loads of predators, and they will, just as everything does, have their share of parasites. In fact, there's one well-known twisted-winged parasite. Twisted-winged. Yeah. They're beautiful, marvelous, bizarre, little-known order of insect. And you wouldn't spot them in nature for two reasons. And they're, they fall under the... Female and the male category. Females. How do you find female strepsipterans, these twisted winged parasites? Look for a wasp or a bee or maybe a cricket. And you have to look at the abdomen of that insect. And if one of the armored plates is lifted up slightly and there's a little brownish blob sticking out from underneath it, that's the female. Hmm. No legs, no wings, no head, no... It's just a thing, right? (laughs) So you might not notice a female. The male, this is where the twisted wings come from. And they have these weird, like raspberry-like eyes that operate differently than any other insect. They're not true compound eyes in the conventional sense. They eclose, they emerge as adults. And some of them have, get a load of this, guess how much time they have as adults to do everything that a male would do? Three days. Four to six hours to locate a female, which will be on the body of another insect before you die. Wow. That is, that's a real frantic life. Yeah. And apparently some of them will go, at least one species has been documented to go for Vespa mandarinia, the giant Asian hornet. And what, what about, are there birds that are going to eat any of these things? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, if they happen to fly in a spider web, right? Or if a lizard goes for them, there's going to be probably a degree of learning yeah. associated with avoiding this hornet. They might not sound exactly like or look exactly like uh, wasps that are native to the United States, for example. But if we go to Japan, if we go to their native areas, I'm sure we'll find a number of predators and parasi- parasites and parasitoids that at least opportunistically go for them. May, may not be specialists on these um, hornets, but may opportunistically go for them. Hmm. Shall I pick another question? Sure, if you want. Yeah. Let's do right. uh, one or two more. Okay. <laughs> ah okay yeah this is a good one too i'm gonna i'm gonna start doing this regularly before i was just i've gotten questions and then i've just tried to read them ahead of time and try to remember enough of the gist of them to ask but this is uh this is a fun approach 
Here, I'll. How about I end with this one? Okay. Because a number of them I've addressed in different ways, but this one. What is the literal point to hornets? Would the Earth be affected without them? And I had a, a colleague who would probably look at you if you asked him that question and say, "What is the point of you? <laughs> yeah. What is the point of humans?" Yeah. Right? We can think of. I mean, Shane, you and I could come up with a long list, as your listeners could, with ways to address that question. Yeah. And I'm not going to say one is a better way than another, or there's one correct way, but we can think about it a few different ways. Let's tackle just one or two of those ones. For example, thinking, what good are humans? Well, <laughs> if we were to take that bent, right. we could say, well, who's doing more damage ecologically to the planet, short-term and long-term, irreparable in some cases, damage to the planet, irreversible biodiversity loss. Is it humans or is it the species of hornet? We're number one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we think about what benefits or assets come with having this hornet present, we can look to other hornets and other wasp species of social predators. And they are predators, and what are they focusing on? Sometimes they're focusing on agricultural hmm. problematic species, like caterpillars again. So having these predators do a much more efficient job and a safer job than our spewing uh, neonicotinoids and other chemicals over plants to remove those pest species, those crop-eating species, that's a benefit, right? Also, in every now I'm going to go into the inherent um, value argument. In every species, there's a myriad plus intricacies that are unique to that species. What does that species have to offer in unknown and maybe unknowable ways, especially if we prevent them from surviving, if we deplete their population or uh, eradicate them from a an anthropocentric a human perspective we could think in terms of what do we gain not just in terms of predators removing pest species but are there potential medicinals or foods alcohol etc or the, that's right the liquor with that punch i, of the I venom think that's what the question the was trying to get down to the bottom <laughs> of <laughs> That's you, right. you might okay. have overly complicated how, how, how can it. I think you were asking, can I get high beverage? off of this bug? <laughs> is, is, is what he was there having. are other insects to which you can turn, but in this case, yes, they're consumed in different ways for various reasons. But so the, the known benefits and the unknown, and in some cases, unknowable benefits might be great. Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons to... Th and. Now I'm going to go to the, what I feel is the strongest argument, and that is the unknowable effects removing any species from its environment in terms of others. Sure, you take away this, to some, scary, to me, gorgeous and intriguing insect species, but to some frightening species, what might come about? Something more frightening? I keep going back to COVID-19 because we're in the midst of a pandemic during the recording of this mm -hmm. without a vaccine in sight. COVID-19 is horrifying 
it's horrible and we're seeing the effects some explicit some implicit some obvious some hidden some short-term some long-term we eradicate COVID-19 with a vaccine no telling what comes next now I'm not saying that removing this virus would have a causal association with what could follow right but it's sometimes pretty easy to see in a really obvious large insect what effects can happen when you remove that. Hmm. So there can, there can be dangers. And we could take this in another direction where, you know, this what does this hornet do? So it kills um, scores of people over years and years time, right? A mosquito, biggest killer through malaria, you know, with over a million people, um, getting malaria every year, many dying. Uh, what is the value of a mosquito? We could extend it to that, or a flea, or a louse, or, and the list goes on. And the arguments are fascinating. And there's where we'll end with the Q&A. That's what, and, the, the, and that's it. <laughs> what about ticks? Are you going to defend ticks too, just to... Just to Definitely. just to get more of the uh, more of the insect haters on on your bad side. Is... No, let's keep in mind yeah. ticks are arachnids. They have two major body parts, not three, and they have eight locomotory appendages <laughs> and not six. We do need so to keep ticks, that in mind. <laughs> okay. That's where we need to start. Okay. And now that we think about arachnids, and in this case, ectoparasites that can again opportunistically, facultatively suck the blood of yeah. humans. There's some situations like Lyme disease, which are really problematic. And I'm not going to dismiss these problems, but we have to weigh the cost benefits of eliminating a species forever and what known and unknown factors could result. Hmm. They play a role. Everything plays a role in the environment. Well, I'm still not convinced you know your insects, but uh, good, good try anyway. I, 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 like, I, I love... I, Shame! I, I of all people! I, uh, oh. Me of all people. Of all people! <laughs> After you sitting through 45 minutes of technical <laughs> difficulties, that's how I'm going to end things with a real, with a real roast right. to Barrett Klein. Uh, I, I, I hope that I hope that we've really converted some hornet haters today. I hope that instead of the angry cargo inspecting emails that we were going to get avoided oh, right. because the of the technical checkers. difficulties, right. we instead get I, I'm I'm uh, hoping and expecting a lot of uh, a lot of apologies on uh, from. <laughs> From the anti-hornet people, a lot of people that came into this wanted to get worked up, wanted to get angry, wanted to figure out how to get rid of these darn things. There must be a lot of humility. (laughs) And and I'd love if... I'd love to have follow-up questions or interactions. Yeah, they can contact me directly or through Shane. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, reach out to uh, just Google Barrett Klein UWL. And you can find them uh, directly. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, well, yeah. thanks for inviting uh, listeners for the opportunity to do that. And thank you for once again, third appearance. I think you're tied for the... I'm, I'm not sure that any guest has been on more than three times. I oh think my you're... Goodness. So I, 
I need to have a third and a half appearance. Just to yeah, maybe pass that threshold. Yeah, you might be second place, or you're at least oh, tied okay. for first with right. like only right. two other people. That's maybe at good. least a cameo in the future, just so I can <laughs> edge out the Shane. Uh, uh, we'll talk about it. I'm into it. So I just I want to leave your listeners with positive mm-hmm. impressions of the grand diversity of wasps. Because if you're fearing wasps because of one especially large species that's out there, right? Remember that there are over 100,000 species of wasps, all with amazing behaviors. Mm -hmm. If you want to read from the so-called poet of science, Jean Fabre, Jean-Henri Fabre, about insects and the... The, the fascination of their lives, their day-to-day lives, all the way to present-day books about insects. Here's a good one. So colleague and friend Brian Danforth and colleagues just published The Solitary Bees, Biology, Evolution, and Conservation. So again, if you only think about one species of bee, this could open your eyes to the behaviors, the value from a human perspective, an environmental perspective, ecological perspective, and just from behavioral fascination perspective, this is a great one to pick up. And a little bit of a tangent, this is a fun one too. This is called The Songs of Insects, and it comes with a, a CD, and basically it's a beautiful, it wondrous field guide. It comes with a guide. CD? Yeah, a wondrous field guide of the katydids, grasshoppers, crickets, um, cicadas, and the other song, the songsters, the singers, not only at night, but during the day, that you might be deaf to. And I was, to some extent, I would hear this soundscape that was just kind of a blur before I took a little workshop course with the author. And now... And it opened my ears. Now, you're, you're like one of the car guys that hears the... Uh, that here's the thing going down the street <laughs> can identify the year uh sounds like it might right. might be need a new chain it's thing. a handsome tree <laughs> dog day cicada you got it. Uh, amazing um and justin schmidt's book sting of the wild by the sting, way I, I, yes. because i because i um sometimes plug the audiobook company Libro.fm only because they split half of their proceeds with independent bookstores you pick your own independent bookstore in your area or maybe a list of black-owned independent bookstores. You click on that. Every time you get an audiobook, half of the proceeds from that go to them. And I know Justin Schmidt's book is on there. Offer code here we are if you want to help out this guy. But uh, get into reading. There's some book suggestions for you. Thank you so much, Barrett Klein, for being such a wonderful, incredible guest once again. We should go for a hike or something sometime. A socially distanced little get-together one of these days. I'd love that. I've been discovering more and more local hikes in the in the Driftless Zone, in the Lacrosse area. Awesome. And the insects are so diverse and gorgeous right now. Let's, I'd love to do that. Let's do it. I want a whole insect tour. Awesome. Indeed. All right. Take care, my friend. Thank you very much. Entomophilia. Thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious people. We'll see you next episode. 
everybody. If you liked the show, make sure and leave a review. Do all those good things. And make sure and check out my Patreon where I put questions for future guests. Like, hey, do you guys have vaccine questions? Whoo, people got some real uh, opinions about vaccines. But do you have questions? What if you got to talk to someone that actually studies vaccines? What questions do you want answered? It is weird. You ask people, hey, does anyone have any questions about vaccines? Crickets. No one has any questions about vaccines. You throw a vaccine fact out on the internet, everyone screams at you about their vaccine opinions. They don't want to know about vaccines. They just want to have their opinions about vaccines. So interesting. What a strange group of primates we are, huh? Man, so much to talk about. I love that I have a community of you folks that are like my, and this isn't to say I'm not super, This I wrote a whole post about how we should absolutely be skeptical of, of, of all medicines and science and, and vaccines and everything else. Absolutely. That's what makes science great. Um, and, uh, but holy cow, there is, there is a line that crosses over into some real delusional conspiracy ideas, and it is it it, it went from a cute little embarrassing hobby that people had to now conspiracy peddlers are are writing some of the most popular books, are becoming president. Are they're taking they're they're hijacking uh, our understanding of life itself and and supposing that they are the underdogs fighting for our health and our lives when in fact it's usually just the opposite. If you ask me, that has been my experience. And if you really want to care about underdogs and getting the truth out there, then you're the type that's going to keep listening to this podcast because I get people that aren't celebrities, aren't provocateurs, aren't spinning wild, crazy, attention-grabbing nonsense and coming up with ridiculous fairy tales about how everything's rigged against you so you never have to try in life guys there's plenty of reasons to not try in life i'll give you as many as i can think of but conspiracy theories are not one of those reasons all right give up for something logical give up on life over something logical that it maybe it's hard maybe it's not worth your energy not because there's lizard people under the... Are you kidding me? Get, get out of here with that crap. And why is it always... this? Ha- you know how many friends I've had turn to the dark side? Now start spouting bigoted, hateful conspiracy crap 
people that often used to be like fun-loving, new-agey folks that just went down some conspiracy wormhole that they couldn't get themselves out of. Enough is enough. We're happy to have a conversation. Let's have the conversation. So, if you have questions about vaccines, write them to me. Put them on Patreon. Put them on Facebook. Send me a message on Twitter or Instagram. And I'll, I'll have someone who's an expert give you a nice, thought-out answer for your question. All right. Fair enough. Does that seem reasonable enough to you guys? I sure hope so. I sure like to think of my listeners as the type where that is a very reasonable offer. Bring your skepticism. Bring your doubts. We invite that here and ask questions and have a conversation. All right. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do more of this. I'm trying to build up a community. I want to start a discord. I want to get a conversation going online. And I guess that's why I don't mind alienating a couple conspiracy folks here and there. No, not everyone that is an anti-vaxxer is a conspiracy theorist. Of course not. If you saw any of my recent posts, I would have addressed this. But there are people that are believing in microchips and flat earth and every other damn stupid thing that's out there. And I don't have the space, the energy, or capacity for it. And and they tend to crowd out the conversation with everyone else because they're internet trolls. So, if I lost a couple internet trolls in saying this, well, there's plenty other podcasts. It seems to be quite the popular thing these days. But, for those of you that I haven't lost, that are interested in critical thinking, that are interested in hearing from experts who have expertise in areas that are working toward understanding the incredibly infinite complexity of life. You guys are my favorites. Thanks for listening.